Our second reading is from the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked day and night so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Paul was a tent maker by trade. He'd most likely learned that trade at about the same age that Jesus learned the trade of carpentry, that is, in his early teens. Being a tradesman did not mean that a young person was not able also to study and learn Torah in the synagogue. Both Jesus and Paul were working men and Jewish scholars. Acts 18, verse 3 tells us about Paul's trade, that when he went to Corinth, he stayed with Aquila and Priscilla, and he worked with them because they too were tent makers. In this second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul makes it very clear that work is not only honorable, it is necessary, and Christians are expected to engage in it. We've recently read other parts of this letter and learned that the early church in Thessalonica was going astray in some of its beliefs. Some had been preaching the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They thought he would return to bring the kingdom of God in the very near future. Paul has reminded them that this is not so. He had taught them before, both in person and by letter, that there would be signs of the ending of the world before the second coming. It appears that some of the members of the church are just idling away their time, thinking probably, why bother to work if the day of the Lord is just around the corner? Paul reminds them that when he was with them, he worked. He didn't rely solely on their hospitality for his housing and his food. Surely he could have done so. As a leader and a teacher, he had the right to be given hospitality, as he says outright here. 
his teaching was work. But he wanted to be an example to people, so he took up his trade and he contributed to the community. We don't know whether he made his tents for members of the Christian community in Thessalonica to live in, or whether he just made them to sell so that he could pay his own way and provide for himself and for others. But clearly, his work was for the common good. I began this sermon the day after the election. I was reading many, many posts and news items about the election. <clears throat> I was astounded by how many of them ended with the same sentiment. There is work to do to move forward from here. We must continue the work of loving, peacemaking, bridge building. It never ceases to amaze me how relevant scripture is to the situations we face given the millennia that have gone by since these words were set down. Here is Paul saying that we must work if the kingdom is to be realized. And here are friends of mine, family members, commentators, rap stars, saying we must work together for a better tomorrow. I, probably like you, have worked my whole life. I began at the age of 15 with a Saturday job at the local library. I had various jobs during my college years, and then I took up teaching when I graduated. My first teaching job was in a private school in Cambridge, England, because public school jobs at that time were very few and far between. But after one semester, I did find a teaching job, the equivalent, the British equivalent of third grade, in a nearby public school. Education was my vocation for my entire adult life. Once I came to Florida, I worked in early childhood education, mostly at the, in the state university system. For seven of those years, I was the director of the University of Florida's Educational Research Center for Child Development, otherwise known as Baby Gator. What I particularly loved about this work was the amazing diversity of families and staff I was able to work with. There were children from all around the world, as well as local children of UF staff and faculty and local children from our Head Start program. We celebrated the diverse cultural backgrounds of all these families. And I began advocacy on a local and national level for minority and low-income children. I continued this advocacy work later at USF in my work with migrant and farm worker families as I headed up a state program, Parents as Teachers, that's designed to help low-income and minority families to give the children the tools they need to rise up out of poverty. I consider, of course, my ministry now 
to be a vocation, a calling. But I always considered my work in education as a vocation too. A commentary on the Theology of Work Project website claims that Paul's tent-making and his preaching were not two separate roles that Paul played. In other words, Paul did not simply make and sell tents for financial reasons, but he was a witness to Christ's saving love as he carried out his work. When we view our work in this way, whatever our work may be, there is holiness in it. Our work is not always easy and straightforward. There can be discouraging times in our work life. There were certainly obstacles placed in my way, in my work, in support of diverse and low-income families. I remember one occasion back in the 90s at Baby Gator. We flew a United Nations flag there to celebrate the nations represented at the center. One morning, I was greeted by a message on our answering machine threatening violence to the children if we didn't remove the flag. I faced heavy opposition in a subsequent position, actually within the Presbyterian Church, and, but in an educational position, as I attempted to improve pay and conditions for the early childhood teachers I supervised. Early childhood teachers, incidentally, are some of the lowest paid workers in our nation. And the work that I loved at the University of South Florida came to an end when the federal grant program that funded it was completely cut. Such obstacles are discouraging to our work, to be sure. For many people, the election feels like an interruption of our work. Paul argues that we must continue our work no matter what is going on around us, even if we think the Lord is coming soon, especially if we think that the Lord is coming soon. Many people have felt discouragement this week, some even despair. It's hard to know what to do when despair and discouragement hit. I've read and heard many different responses to the election. Some saying that we need time to grieve and regroup. Some responses are angry, even offensive. Some are joyful. Some lay out clear steps to take to continue the gospel work for peace and understanding. The most helpful responses are the thoughtful ones that tell us that the work continues. I read a brief Facebook post the morning after the election. I wrote about it very briefly in my post-election message to you. A young Presbyterian pastor, a new dad, and in fact a friend of of Debbie and Harry Horns, um, he went to visit the preschool of a nearby Islamic center. I needed kingdom work to do this week. So inspired by this young pastor, 
a number of the former members of the Highlands Presbyterian Church went to visit three different centers on Thursday. We visited the Islamic Center in Gainesville. We visited the Institute for Hispanic and Latino Culture and the Institute for Black Culture. We carried flowers and cards, and we were incredibly well received. Our message was simply that we value their presence in this place, and we stand beside them in the coming weeks and months. We received warm hugs and appreciation on campus. The Imam at the Islamic Center, Ahmed, invited us to a lunch and to Friday prayers the following day. The group went along, and we were all deeply moved by the warm reception we received and by the message that Ahmed preached. He spoke of the similarities between the teachings of Christ and of Islam, the emphasis in both religions on loving your neighbor and on helping the poor. We learned that service to neighbor is essential to Islam and that this group of Muslims takes this tenet of their faith so seriously that they offer medical services to anyone, whatever their faith, in a free clinic that's run from their facility. The need for healing work will be vitally important in the coming weeks and months, no matter who you voted for, no matter what side you were on during this election. We are to come together. We are one team in this community and in this nation. Certain groups will need particular attention and particular reassurance. Mexican-Americans need to be assured that their families will not be torn apart. African-Americans who continue to bear the brunt of the racism that some may now feel is sanctioned need to hear voices of solidarity. Our daughters and granddaughters need to be reassured that what has been called a rape culture will not be tolerated. The very earth itself needs to be protected from the rollback of policies that support the environment. Prophetic voices continue to speak and will not be silenced, whatever laws may be passed, whoever may threaten and attempt to dominate. So I hope you'll forgive a senior woman pastor this quotation that I want to end with. It's from a rapper. His name is Macklemore. I don't even know if I'm saying that. Oh, thank you. I got a thumbs up at the back. I didn't even know if I was pronouncing it correctly, but apparently I am. I found it very moving and very much in tune with Paul's teachings. This is what he said, he wrote. But now, as I'm laying next to my daughter as she sleeps, I remember. 
I remember what I have control over and what I don't. I don't have control over who becomes president. That has been decided. But what I do have control over is where I go from here. I will teach my daughter to love all people, regardless of the color of their skin, their gender, religious beliefs, sexual orientation, or where their birth certificate says they're from. I will teach her how important it is to be an advocate for humanity, not just the portion of humanity that benefits her. I will teach her nonviolent communication, that in the face of hatred, we must love each other even harder, not give in, not get discouraged or feel like our progress in the past is void, keeping fighting for all of us with an emphasis on those that and have been the most affected by systemic oppression. I will teach her that when she is silent during moments of injustice, she is siding with the oppressor. I will teach her that walls divide people and by their nature cannot bring us closer. And that just because someone holds the most powerful position in the world does not make that person right, just, or fair. The president is not raising my daughter. I am. I get to encourage and nurture her to be who she wants to be. Teach her that her voice and actions can change the world. Teach her that she can do anything that a man can do and one day even become President of the United States of America. I have work to do. It starts now. And that work is the only thing bringing me peace at the moment. Amen. Now let us stand and say together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, 